I'm Sarah Samuel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, we tackle diversity and inclusion in the highest levels of Canadian security. I spoke with Huda McBeal, a security expert and former CSIS officer, about the dangers of excluding minority voices from Canadian intelligence institutions and the threat this poses to our national security. Take a listen. I'm joined now by Huda McBeal. She's a national security expert and a former senior intelligence officer with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and many other uh, security institutions in Canada. She also writes for the Hill Times where she wrote a piece about diversity and inclusion in Canadian security institutes. Welcome Huda. Hi Sarah, thank you for having me. So I really wanna start with like how you got started in national security, like what kind of drew you to it? I studied uh, law at Carleton University, and I took a course in national security. I was intrigued by just the, uh, the politics, security, um, and the passion everybody had about, about what was going on in Canada historically on, you know, the October crisis in 1970, the McDonald Commission. Those were the kind of conversations that we were having in our seminar. And I found them interesting. And so I applied to the RCMP and I applied to Canada Border Security Service and to CSIS. And, uh, you know, back then it was an online applications. You mailed in your applications and I received a reply from both CBSA and CSIS. And for some reason, I didn't envision myself being young, early 20s, somewhere far from home. So um, I thought thesis would be the ideal choice. But it wasn't until, in the letter that that thesis sent back to me, inviting me for a meeting, sort of informal with uh, an intelligence officer, I went, I met with a female intelligence officer at a coffee shop somewhere downtown Ottawa. And... um, we talked about domestic international security issues and she had a real enthusiasm in the work that she did. Uh, it, it transferred over because after that day, all I wanted to do and all I thought about was becoming a spy and working for CSIS as an intelligence officer. And during the recruitment process at every level, I performed my best and walking around Uh, the building, I noticed uh, maps, international maps, and that that just did it for me. Like I felt I wanted to be part of um, serving uh, the country, but you know, that international dimension that I felt wasn't uh, present in other institutions really pulled me into wanting a career at CSIS. What was your favorite part of the job? Um, My favorite part was uh, I worked as an investigator in Toronto, and going out and speaking with people, uh, explaining the mandate of the service, connecting, that's the part that I loved most. I liked the analytical work as well. I enjoy researching. And, um, the, but, you know, the part that, uh, that's, really, that's really interesting is meeting with counterparts in the intelligence community, uh, members of the 5i intel community, uh, meeting with CIA officials, FBI, MI5. I just, 
I don't know, it, it just feels like you're on top of the world, <laughs> you know, uh, just meeting and interacting and, you know, advancing sort of international uh, security um, at the forefront, being at the forefront of, of those efforts um, was really uh, rewarding. Yeah, it sounds like you really enjoyed your job. So when did you first start noticing there were issues in diversity and inclusion and how did that affect you? I noticed it right away <laughs> uh, during the interview process. Some of the questions I, I, I was being asked were, I felt, well, first of all, like the interviews, a lot of times uh, at the senior level at CSIS, uh, they were former RCMP officers and all male decision makers. Um, and so you feel it when you're a woman and when you're a visible minority where, you know, you have to try to impress, you know, even if there is bi questions that you feel are biased, you have to almost ignore it and keep going. <laughs> but um, in training as well, I've no I noticed it, can't speak to exactly what these issues are in a public sort of realm, but I, you know, it's throughout, throughout, that's uh, part of the culture. You know, uh, the culture, it was, and it continues to be to this day, predominantly white male decision makers. Um, women uh, have come uh, a long way. The first set of female intelligence officers was in 1984. And that's, you know, that's not too <laughs> long ago. So these females are now making it into the middle management positions and some at the leadership position took a while, but for visible minorities, it's still a problem. First of all, at CSIS, it's 0% visible minorities in leadership positions. And there's a real lack of representation at the entry level, middle management level. And so, so that continues to be a problem. Hmm. You wrote in your article that visible minorities working in the security and intelligence community are voiceless both inside and outside their organizations. What did that mean for you and how do you think that affected some of your other colleagues of color? Well, for me, it meant that there's this lack of inclusive atmosphere. And, and it wasn't just me, but um, there was a report that came out. It's a climate assessment report that your organization launched in 2017, uh, 2017, and it became public. And in it, there were a number of issues that were identified to be of concern. Uh, it was a survey of, of one third of, of my colleagues in the Toronto region. And, you know, the findings, are, are just shocking. Just lack of trust in decision-making, fear of reprisal, favoritism, nepotism, lack of diversity in the office, and how it's detrimental to the work that's being done outside of the office, low morale, just some, you know, really, you know, it, it's not the way that, that uh, a security and intelligence uh, service should be running. And I think this is, been happening in other national security organizations. CBSA also did a, a survey of the culture and found it to be really problematic, um, the military, the RCMP. And so I think this is what prompted the National Committee of uh, Parliamentarians, the NSI COP, to conduct the, um, the study that they did, which was focused 
again, not on systemic issues, but on individual cases that were happening between 2015 and 2017. And their findings are, are similar to um, the kind of issues that in the climate assessment report from the Toronto Region Office, a real lack of representation of visible minorities, uh, of women as well in leadership positions, and in entry and middle management positions, in, especially in the military. So they, and, and they speak to the lawsuits and allegations of harassment and how unacceptably high they are. And this clearly lack of account, accountability and commitment from leadership, not, not on the importance of what is diversity and inclusion, whether it is important or not, but in terms of actions that are um, how they prioritize it. So they have not been pri prioritizing um, diversity and inclusion. They had the Tiger team that the Prime Minister had, had put together um, to tackle this issue. And uh, unfortunately, they did, they, they did not conduct the meetings that they need to uh, in order to even come up with a plan and, and, and implement it. You know, it, it's great that the NSI COP has prioritized and and looked into this now, but it also fell short because there were no hearings. So people like me were not invited to come in and share our experience. They also should have requested for data, annual sort of uh, uh, commitments, commitments should have been made, and annual sort of accountability hearings uh, from these organizations and at the top level. Uh, in terms of what they're doing and, you know, whether they've increased um, the recruitment of individuals from the different communities, um, the employment equity report, which is uh, the employment equity groups, if they've increased representation and what the retention is like. Yeah, so you, you talked about this Tiger team and how they were meant to investigate some of these issues. and doesn't seem like they were very motivated. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they're, they don't see it as a national security threat in and of itself. Not understanding that not having the, the best and the brightest from all communities is what is required for national security work. You, you need people from different backgrounds. You need linguists, you need technology experts. Um, and like I said in my report, in Canada, we, we have those. There's a myth that maybe there aren't enough qualified visible minorities. That is not true. <laughs> you look at any university, go into the science and, and math departments and visible minorities make up more than half the student bodies. And we have people who, you know, we have at the elementary level, uh, language schools where international languages are being taught right here in Canada. And so we have a rich, a rich environment in which we can recruit and, and leverage all of this for the betterment of our security. But that's, that's not happening. And these environments that are still to this day predominantly white and male in decision making is, is preventing, preventing that kind of work. And that, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> yeah. And what possible threats could we be missing without the, this contingency of diversity kind of pointing us to different directions? What we could be missing is just the quality of our analysis. 
the quality of our interviews and in assessing in assessing these threats in a way that's not biased and where we can speak it to different people in different communities and establish trust and have them come and tell us oh this is going on and them trusting that we want what's good for these communities so they don't feel like they are targeted so it's important in in in, in all of these fronts we need communities to be trusting us we need a security agency that's able to speak to the threats build trust do outreach and represent the communities that they serve and if we're not doing that then uh, we're not tackling the threats in in and of themselves you know over the summer we saw a surge of protests surrounding police brutality and their often disproportionate response to communities of color so how do you bridge to these communities who may not be keen in joining a security and intelligence organization, you know, particularly something like the RCMP, when there can be such an antagonistic relationship? Yes, it's unfortunate that the tragedy and the killing of George Floyd caught on camera is what prompted the loud and public recognition of this injustice. And there's a lot of work to be done on police brutality and uh, the violence that has been inflicted on communities here in the U.S. and here in Canada. You know, this, this, is, this has prompted a conversation about systemic racism. It, it feels like this is the moment now for change. And that change needs to be, there needs to be, it needs to be more it, it can't be superficial anymore. It needs to be real and there needs to be action. There needs to be transparency and, and accountability. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing from the uh, security and intelligence community is more, uh, more of that superficial, uh, we're going to train everyone, anti-racism um, training and unconscious bias awareness training. And they seem to be repeating that. And I feel like if, if this is where they're at at this time, then <laughs> it, it's really sad because there needs to be way more. You know, the um, RR commission bias was, was right at the top of why um, those, that incident occurred. and they've been given the opportunity to tackle this time and again over and over and so it, it's not it, it ha the conversation has to be beyond just training and raising awareness to include real efforts in terms of recruitment and and retention and creating cultures that are more inclusive so i'm wondering you know if we have this young person coming into a security institution and they're being asked to report on their, you know, home community. How do they deal with that, with potentially feeling like they're betraying their community or, you know, bridging that divide between state and um, identity is what I'm kind of trying to get at. How do you, how would you address a young person who wants to get into that? That's a really good question, Sarah. And it's, it's something that, that needs to be discussed. When I think of the FBI, for example, and black officers, there's a conversation about, about the fact that the FBI was targeting black community members, including leaders, nonviolent protest movements, leaders like Martin Luther King. And 
those conversations are happening. There's a recognition of the wrongs. And I think that goes a long way in forward looking and trying to recruit within these communities and being present and doing outreach with members of the community by providing with officers that are of that community and to address these kind of concerns that may be lingering, that may be happening in order to bring people in. And really, in the long run, I think representation is what's going to solve issues like that, but a recognition. There is a book out there um, titled Behind the Enigma, and it's written by John Ferris. So he revealed some declassified information from uh, GCHQ, which is a British uh, spy agency, equivalent to the NSA. And in his book, it's, it reveals information that between 1950 to 1980, there was a, a color ban on the hiring of visible minorities. Um, so it read that either or both of uh, whose parents is not of old dominion white stock was barred from entry into the security establishment. And in, in his book, the GCH, GCHQ says that this was uh, common practice. And this is, I believe, the history uh, here in Canada and within the RCMP and, and organizations that were created by the British around the same time. And it explains to me why I was one of the first visible minorities and the first female of Arab background intelligence officer. And so we have that history where, you know, there were real barriers to entry that has had an impact on and why these places, there's lack of representation in these organizations to date. And so an, an acknowledgement will, would go a long way into uh, a public acknowledgement of this would go a long way into um, recruitment efforts and inclusiveness now. And um, what it's like in a, a public admission of this helps because um, then individuals know that there, there's an acknowledgement and you know, there is that maturity in these organizations to publicly acknowledge these wrongs. And only when we acknowledge these wrongs are we going to be able to effectively change. That's the first step is that acknowledgement of the wrongs and, um, and a commitment. But that commitment is not going to come on its own. It needs transparency and it needs accountability. And there is resistance to that. And the NSI COP report talks about this. It talks about the fact that there's a lack of buy-in in terms of goals for diversity and inclusion. Th that to me is really problematic because if the commitment isn't there, I, well, how can I look someone in the eyes in the community and say, well, come on in, you're welcome, right? It's, it's difficult to do that when, when that commitment isn't there. But we, sh we shouldn't leave it to these organizations. That's, that's the one thing. When um, looking at the, some old uh, CERC review reports, uh, CERC is the um, Security Intelligence Review uh, Committee. Looking at these CERC reports, when CSIS was first established in 1984, they wanted, there was a focus to create a civilian organization. And so <laughs> they wanted to create a civilian organization, but it was individuals that were in the RCMP security service that were transferred over, still wearing their uniforms, <laughs> 
and later on had to leave the uniform behind and start thinking it, it, not in, in, in military terms and not as an enforcement agency. For many years, they recruited out individuals that were former military, former police officers, because that's, that's who they were and that's who they, that's the type of individuals that they felt can do the work. And, um, and um, they had to be forced uh, by the government to start looking at universities to hire individuals with no military experience or police or, or RCMP um, experience. So there was a real push by the government. And this is what has to happen now that there needs to be the NSI COP uh, report um, highlighted the, the concerns, but then gave itself three to five years to, to look into calling them back. But what, what, what is, what is going to happen in the next three to five years? <laughs> there needs to be some data collection. So they didn't, um, there's no push for these organizations to do more, only to come back and report what, what they've implemented in the, in the five, three to five years. So there needs to be accountability from the outside on, on diversity and inclusion so that they're prioritizing this. What are some possible, you know, solutions you think to this problem? I mean, I know we're not going to solve it in one conversation, but some like concrete steps that we can start taking as a country to start addressing this. Well, um, security intelligence agencies like CSIS and the RCMP need to uh, look at uh, recruitment to increase representation of visible minorities in these organizations. And in their recruitment efforts, they need to be reaching out to members of different communities, um, go in there, inspire and, and tackle difficult questions like that perception of being targeted, for example, by some communities. Um, and they need to do more outreach, build trust, and they need to make these communities feel like um, they're being served. So right now with white supremacists, uh, the surge of white supremacist violence, they need to, they need to communicate what they're doing to, um, with, with, on, on that threat, on that front. And so they also need to hire experts, and um, these experts need to be from different communities. So there needs to be inclusivity in those experts that they hire to provide and, and not only like HR experts with inclusive, exclusive background, but there are individuals, for example, in health and wellness programs uh, in the organizations that need to also tackle those type of issues, uh, mental health providers. Sometimes from my own experience, I found that um, people that are serving these in these organizations in the health and wellness and mental health providers, um, not only did they lack diversity in those people that are serving in these fields, but they didn't understand the cultures. It, it's overwhelming, you know, that uh, boys club culture, uh, that those type of networks are, are really problematic. And, and I found providers of uh, these services sometimes didn't understand the culture as well as they should have. Also, uh, the collection of data um, on, you know, who's applying from, from which specific community. So in the U.S., there's a push now to determine, even within the diverse uh, uh, groups, if Blacks are uh, applying more than, you know, individuals from Indigenous communities or from 
uh, Muslim communities or so the breaking down of the diversity within the diverse groups and um, trying to reach the ones that that, are, that don't see themselves represented in in these organizations but what they do on the inside in terms of fostering inclusive environments is, is really really important and there are systemic barriers that make it really difficult for people to stay and you know there isn't mentorship sponsorship networking for uh, visible minorities uh, the service began a women's networking group recently that's promising that's good there needs to be uh, one for for uh, visible minorities also um, really tackle the issue of harassment and discrimination and, and these complaints the focus you know it, it, maybe this is a government-wide issue but uh, they're not quick for to take action on on those type of complaints and sometimes people that complain become the complaint itself and you know uh, managers tend to want these people to go away and it has more of an impact on the individuals that complain than it does on the complaint and the issues that need to be resolved. Um, I don't know if you saw just recently, I think it was a couple of days ago, the Transport Canada employee, the whistleblower that spoke about uh, uh, discriminatory emails that were being sent uh, across Transport Canada's Intel department. And it took 10 years for action. And that action never happened when it was reported. It only happened when it got media recognition. That sense of really, that, that's not, <laughs> that's not, that, that's really disconcerting because in, you know, security intelligence work is, is classified work and those issues need to be resolved internally. And so there's a real need to make sure that the mechanisms for complaints and um, and that these allegations are, are taken seriously and, and the perception that they are, uh, you know, that that's important. And that's something that I, f I found lacking while I, when I worked at uh, both uh, CSIS and the CBSA. Do you think that's what ultimately made you leave? Um, yeah, that is why I left. And so, you know, Canada lost on, on someone who speaks four languages, on someone who has had top secret clearance for many, many years. I found career advancement to be a real obstacle as a visible minority, as a woman. Uh, you know, the Americans have an act now on diversity inclusion where at least one member of the interviewing group needs to be a, a visible minority or a woman. And, you know, the service has been kind of um, taking steps to include women in these processes, but I don't, I don't know if it was the kind of jobs that I was applying for, but I've not had a woman interviewer. <laughs> it has always been white, male, um, and, and panels, right, where I'm the only visible minority, um, and sometimes where, you know, I'm asked personal questions, and I, I found those to be really difficult to overcome and um, felt that decisions were not fair because obviously a lot of times individuals that are making a decision, you know, when they see uh, another white male uh, who looks like them, they, 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 they see future in that person and, and not necessarily in someone who doesn't look like them or, and so on. And, and the networking obviously was, was problematic because it, w it wasn't inclusive. Like the, um, I found that to be, you know, lack of 
effort by the organization to ensure that there's some networking happening and so on. I've had some, some managers at the director general uh, level that were, um, you know, my sponsors. And I think that's what kept me going for 16 years. But generally, generally, that's not available. That's not there. So, and, and, you know, not seeing someone like me in leadership positions, you know, also communicates. And you, and you write in your article about these potential blind spots in particular to white supremacy. So why do you think there's been this reluctance to address that within Canadian security institutions? There's a reluctance to address white supremacy. I, I believe that's due to bias. Um, the government has listed two different organizations. And uh, even after listing these two organizations, we have not seen significant action in terms of arrests or criminalization on that front. But I'd argue that more white supremacist groups need to be, need to be listed as terrorist entities. And that would prompt action. We can use tools that are, you know, existing tools so that we are able to criminally in the criminal prosecution, um, civil penalties and have these, uh, their assets frozen. Also be able to use border controls, travel bans, and uh, take down some social media uh, website where these types of ideologies are, um, are, are active. And, you know, the, the, the numbers are, are pretty high. We're looking at 6, 000, 6, um, 660 Canadian right-wing extremist channels, groups, pages. That's, that's a significant number. And what we know is that it only takes one person, like Alexander Bizanak, it takes one person to conduct attacks and, and murder people. And so, you know, there has to be a real effort put into this. It's, it's unreal that in this day and age, we have mosques that close for security reasons. Um, one of the mosques in Toronto closed, um, they closed after receiving a message saying that mentioned white supremacy and the fact that they are trained and, um, you know, former military experience. And so that prompted the mosque to close its doors for a few days. I'm not sure if they have opened now or not, but, you know, the government needs to tackle this. And there was a call by the a Muslim organization, the NCCM, and several other faith groups, and I believe human rights groups, uh, where they called on the government to establish to establish a national action plan on dismantling white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups that threaten Canadians. Um, and so the response, there's been some sort of response, some meetings is what I'm, you know, um, I'm, I'm privy to know, but in terms of concrete action, I, I have not seen that yet. And so communicating and prioritizing the threat is something that's really required and, and it's lacking. So I'm wondering, uh, as our as a final thought, if you could kind of leave us with an idea of what you foresee as the largest security and intelligence issues that we as the public should keep an eye out for. Obviously, white supremacy, as we talked about, and I think you gave us some great ideas on like how to advocate to the government for that, but what are some others that you foresee? So the threat environment has become increasingly challenging. We've got the pandemic, economic insecurities, and 
aggressive foreign interference, all on the minds of security officials. If, if there's two things that I think are worth uh, at the top of the list, it would be aggressive foreign interference, our, our place in the geopolitical struggles um, competition that's happening between our number one trading partner, the U.S., and number two trading partner um, in China. Cybersecurity threats especially when they're linked to uh, when they have an impact on critical infrastructure. So an example is the 2015 uh, hacking that happened in the Ukraine, uh, where three energy uh, distribution companies were attacked and temporarily uh, disrupted electrical supply to consumers. And so these type of attacks take uh, a couple of individuals and yet have an impact on, on the country and communities. And we know that there is an effort to target healthcare providers and, and uh, amongst other critical infrastructures. And, and so that's where I see uh, the threat growing and becoming more challenging. And, you know, this, this whole notion of uh, diversity and inclusion is so key, even to that threat, because, you know, what, what we're seeing other countries do is, is um, recruiting at elementary level, <laughs> uh, where they're trying to get the next cryptologist trained and ready and identifying those talents early, early on and uh, nurturing that talent. And so national security conversations need to be happening at that level and a preparedness uh, by leveraging all the talent that we have in this country and uh, making sure that we have a pipeline of uh, trained, aware, equipped uh, individuals that can help to serve this country. So that, and that's, that's why I argue that diversity and inclusion are a national security concern in and of themselves. Definitely a lot of food for thought there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. iAffairs Canada is located at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and is under the direction of Dr. David Carment. I've been your host, Sarah Samwell. See you next time.